This is TV Take, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. Today we talk with Seth Meyers, host of NBC's Late Night. Later, critics Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke preview this summer's new shows, and reporter Joe Otterson breaks down the 2018-2019 Broadcast Network ratings race. Stay tuned. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. So it's been five years since you took over as the host of Late Night. If you go back that period of time or a tad earlier, do you recall what was the first conversation that you had about taking over that show? It was with Lauren Michaels. And I remember I was in a hotel room on the road doing some shows and he called me and... When you talk to Lauren Michaels, oftentimes it seems like a follow-up call to a conversation you haven't had. So, you know, he picks it up as though you've already talked about the possibility of you hosting a late-night talk show and says, you know, look, it'll be good and you'll learn, you'll grow into it. And, you know, because there had been printed a few places, this was after uh, Jimmy had gotten uh, tapped to do The Tonight Show, so there had been printed a few places that maybe I would take over, but I had never heard anything from it. And uh, and it was weird because I hung up the phone and I realized, wait, did I did Lauren just tell me I'm going to host late night? <laughs> and uh, but that is how a lot of news via Lauren comes, uh, sort of as a, a through a fog. <laughs> In addition to the weirdness of receiving news from Lauren that way. I would imagine this has happened a few times in your career. Is it ever odd to read about things that are maybe or maybe not happening in, in your career in the New York Post? Or- yes. And, it, you know, I think I didn't take it seriously because it had just happened uh, with – I had filled in for a week uh, with Kelly Ripa, and that had been printed as a thing. And I sort of knew that there was no truth to that when it was uh, printed. And so when it got printed in the New York Post, I also assumed that there was no truth to it. And then it turned out, well, sometimes, the, sometimes rumors are right. Right. What uh, – so the show that you developed, now that it's been five years – is it is what the show is now how different is it from what you thought it might be i didn't I, the reality was i didn't think that much about what it would be nor did i give myself a lot of time to think about it which looking back ultimately probably was a good decision i there was only 3 weeks between when i did my last snl and when i did my first late night we had a writing staff that was working farther out than that but i was sort of doing both jobs and everything we came up with before the show started, none of it worked. So had we been given nine months instead of two months, none of that would have worked either because you only learn by doing. And so the hardest press I've ever done in my life was the press before the show launched because you have to say what you want the show to be without knowing how these shows work and what doing them is like. So the things that we said that it ended up being right is I would say we want to have authors on the show. We want to talk about politics. And that all sort of came to pass. But as far as the format, I don't think we thought when it started that it would be what it is now. Process-wise, I mean, how do you go about creating a format? The only thing I can think of that where we've ever seen like a version of that is when Louis did the season where he was trying not to take over for Letterman. Yeah. I don't know if that mirrors reality in any way whatsoever. But like, what was that process like for you? I mean, we, we, you try, I mean, it is really trial and error. We did, I think, four test shows, and that gave us a pretty good sense of what would and wouldn't work. And then obviously, we did then, you know, 100 plus shows of, in actual shows that helped us realize what we did better and what we did 
that wasn't supposed to be on TV. <laughs> um, but, you know, it is, you know, the nice thing about these shows is the reps. And ultimately, in order, it's like any comedian who goes to work out a set, like the more you do it, the better off you're going to be. And so at the very least, you get to do it a lot. And that helped us figure out what we wanted it to be. What were, I mean, I know there were things that changed structurally along the way. One of the first ones I could think of was when you stopped doing the standing model yeah, yeah. and moved to the desk. Um, were there things that you tried in that trial period that didn't make it to air that maybe looked in any way different significantly from what we, we see? We had something that we called the newsmaker's desk that was going to be a second act piece that would look more like the weekend update desk. And I would be a host and our writing staff, the idea was they would play characters much like update characters. Because again, we were trying to think what are things I'm good at and what are things people would like to see. The problem was that put this huge burden on our writing staff to be as good as the SNL cast that people had last seen me with. And that turned out not to be a fair request of them. And then over the course, so we sort of ditched that. And uh, that was the most expensive thing we bought that we never used. Uh, The second most was a giant TV screen that we thought we would use to do sort of more green screen work that also we never used. So that was the second most expensive thing that we uh, wasted money on. And then I think we managed to resell that back to the Best Buy. But the the interesting thing about our writers, because now they are a really integral part of the show, what we realized was them playing characters was a little too reminiscent of SNL, whereas them coming on and, and talking about things with their unique point of view and being themselves has a value. And and again, you know, we just found it through trial and error. Right. What, I guess, how, how do you get to a point where you say like, maybe like you coming on and not playing a heightened character, but just talking about this thing that you'd like care about or find something funny about. Um, maybe we try that. Like what's like, what's the throwing spaghetti against the wall process? Like, we have like a weekly – there's a couple things. One, uh, we have a weekly table read where we basically say to our writing staff, just write over what you want. Uh, don't aim for anything. I, we don't want to give you instructions. Like we're going to figure out what the show is together. And I don't want you to try to come up with ideas that you think I could also come up with. I'd like you to try to do the opposite of that. And ultimately it is just things happen. And over the course of doing the show, people would come to us and say, Hey, is it all right if I write something up about this? And we do sort of a test audience thing in the afternoon where, so there's no, uh, there's no cost to trying it there. Also, there's no production really for, you know, an in one of a writer talking to camera about something. So, you know, we we basically found like a low risk way to try out things, and and because of that, we could try out more things, and and that's what we have found success with. What time does your day start at? I get in around eight thirty or nine. We tape at six thirty, but you know, our whole first act is very much that day's news, and so uh, very little of it can be done in advance. We have a first draft of a closer look by the time I get in, and so the first three hours of my day are spent working on that. And then we sort of rolled into talking about guests and, and other comedy in the show that's not a closer look, monologue jokes, things like that. But it's a – and then we tape at 6.30. So it's a long day from, you know, 9 to 6.30, but it's a very full day that is never boring, which I think is has value. How, what's your news consumption like? I know, like, John Stewart used to talk about, like, especially toward the end, just being, like, completely fatigued with co- having to consume yeah. Fox News, for instance. So, like, how much are you consuming? How much are you relying on the staff? The staff, there's a great reliance on the staff. And, you know, the other, the the biggest change in our staffing on the show 
has been the production side of a closer look, like getting in more researchers, getting in more people to build graphics. Cause we didn't think our show was going to be that reliant on that. And so we have this really like great group of people who are pulling things now in anticipation of what we will need. And so we could not do the show without them. They're an amazing uh, gift to us. And then, I would say that Twitter, uh, as loath as I am to say, is um, a main source of news and just that, you know, uh, if you need to quickly check and see if something insane has happened in the last half hour, that is the fastest place. You know, that and the sort of breaking news bar on uh, CNN. Are, uh, and neither of those are healthy places to be, uh, to be reliant on the CNN breaking news bar or Twitter. Uh, I can tell you that when we have hiatus weeks, one of the – if there's anything good about this moment we're living through right now – is nothing matters at the end of hiatus. There's no time to recap something that happened last Wednesday because what happened the Sunday before you come back from a hiatus is going to be what you're talking about. So it has been nice to just in the off week say no news, no Twitter, just be a human being <laughs> and then go back to it uh, when you're back on. Um, I know that this is a question that you guess get asked a million times, but it seems like it's always worth asking. How much has what the show become been shaped by Trump and also sort of the the phenomenon that Trump has created? Well, I think that we started doing a closer look a little bit before Trump and, you know, about things like, you know, the Greek financial crisis or Planned Parenthood. And so we were sort of finding our way into this format that we were getting, you know, good feedback on, we found rewarding to do. And then, you know, I think that even had Trump not been a part of that last presidential campaign, we, like everyone else, would have – the show would have covered that in the way that it's sort of so omnipresent when there's a, a – the 18 months before there's an election. With that said, when Trump came on the scene, all of a sudden, oh, there's – you know, uh, he is a material monster in that he just sort of spews out things that are unconventional all day long. With that said, we thought it was going to end at the election um, – yeah, spoiler alert. I this one this is not what I thought was going to happen. And so then all of a sudden, like what we because we had just sort of thought it would go back to normal and then we would be doing more things on, you know, again, uh politics but not presidential politics. So yeah, you know, we try to I think our MO is to follow the biggest news of the day, and and unfortunately it is that more often than not. So it has certainly shaped it, but I do think that. Format-wise, it would have been the same. Content-wise, it obviously would have been uh, massively different. We're heading now into the election yeah. in earnest. What is you guys' strategy for engaging it? I don't know. If we thought through the strategy, you know, we are having candidates on. And if any of them are listening, I do I would say that it's take advantage of being on a late night talk show. It doesn't even have to be mine. Anyone you're on, uh, take advantage of it not being Morning Joe and, and not being Meet the Press and, and use it to uh, engage uh, with a different audience. What do you think that accomplishes? I think that, you know, look, we have a guy in office who, uh, whatever you think about him, he is there because people think he's authentic and genuine and that he says what he thinks. And, you know, I actually don't know if that would work as well in the Democratic Party as it seems to have worked in the Republican Party. With that said, I do think people have a really good ear for authenticity. And when you come, they can tell when you are doing a stump speech. Uh, when you're doing a stump speech, uh, sorry, <laughs> when you are doing a stump speech from the couch, 
they you can I can feel the audience drifting away. <laughs> Whereas when they're in the moment and they're having fun with the fact that it's a late night talk show, um, that you can tell you can feel the audience warming up to the idea of, of oh, this is I, I like this person. Maybe this is somebody who who could represent me. Was it a conversation? Did you guys have a conversation at any point? Like, yes, we're going to have candidates. No, we're not. I don't think so. You know, we did last time as well. And, um, you know, I will say it it has a lower yield of good guests than pretty much any other type of guest. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, I also the audience gets excited, but then puts a higher expectation on it than probably is fair. I think that, you know, when you're at a late night audience and someone comes out, I think a lot of people are like, oh, my God. I might be seeing the next president. And then a few minutes in, they think, I don't think this person's going to be president. I would think I'd rather watch, see a movie star. (laughs) But so what then do you do with that? Knowing that you're going to have these people who there's going to be a lot of anticipation for. And yeah, um, like Seinfeld talked about, I think it was Seinfeld talked about a thing one time where it's like if Jack Nicholson did stand up, he would. People get last yes. for two minutes. Yes. And, and I would imagine it's a similar thing. So what do you do knowing that, like, not everyone is going to be, like, Mayor Pete or whatever. Right. Be able to maintain charisma throughout, yeah. like, the length of a segment that you do. Well, it's strange because you still, I feel like, uh, and I'm trying to be better with this because, um, you know, uh, you don't want to be too deferential to people. Uh, but somehow in my head sometimes I think, well, this is a a congressman or a, or a senator, you know, you have to treat them with some respect, but you hope that you can find something that will make it unique to the moment you're having with them as opposed to every other man. I should say, you know, we've, I, I, we've had some really good ones in, in recent months. Uh, and I, I think I, this is more a memory of 2016 because I do think in the post Trump era, politicians are realizing, you know, shooting from the hip isn't the worst thing in the world. Whereas, you know, I will say 2016 was a terrible referendum on canned speeches. <laughs> yeah. You know what if I mean? Not, if anything else. Yeah. It's like being polished and staying on message got just killed, killed at the polls. Um, what, how do you strike a balance when you got these people on between, you, you started to touch on it, sort of being respectful and taking seriously the person that you're talking to, the idea that this person might be president, might end up making very consequential decisions. Maybe I should ask them something about that versus like this is an entertainment show. And as you said, you got to keep the audience from doing that drifting away. I mean, you do think of it as you try to think of a, a you know, beginning, middle and end. You know, uh, the last one we had on was Senator Bennett from Colorado, who was actually uh, really surprising because I will admit that, you know, as of six months ago, I did not know who he was, nor would I blame anyone in our audience for not knowing who they were. And so it's a little bit of an introduction. And then it's uh, trying to find something, you know, a human on a non-political uh, level, be it their children or, or a previous job they had before politics and then you know you do try to give them at least a chance a couple of minutes to say hey how are you different than everybody else and and you know it's not we don't have a ton of time uh when they come out and so you know i do think it's incumbent upon me to try to keep it moving to so hopefully you know tick a little something in, in all three of those boxes we did do a thing a sketch where we uh brought out a candidate that we just made up and everybody again everybody went crazy and then they slowly realized that we were doing a sketch because we kept having other people uh, come out as candidates. And <laughs> But you realize, like, it is, once you hit, like, 22, 23, um, 
you know, I should know them all, but I bet if you gave me a piece of paper, I could probably, you know, only get into the teens. And so I don't expect people who aren't living and breathing politics to be aware of every single person and, and more importantly, what they look like. Right. How competitive do you guys get over the the bookings with this many people in the field? We're a 1230 show, so we don't have much, you know, even if we wanted to use any muscle, we don't have it. And that is a very liberating feeling. You basically just take them as they come, nor do we feel as though our show is reliant on them. We're never pulling our hair out saying, oh, you know, we can't get a single person to come here. But at the same time, we don't ever get in a, we never say to guests like, how dare you here or nowhere? Because I think the answer more often than not would be uh, nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. What, um, so at the time that you came into the late night, the, like the whole field was in sort of transition. Right? Yeah. Letterman was leaving. Leonard was leaving. What happened with Conan happened with Conan. Um, the and now it has been settled for basically like the last five years. Yeah. Everyone's kind of been in their places. Um, at the same time, like B- Busy Phillips was in here two weeks ago, yep. and she talked about the lack of women in late night and basically, you know, what she felt were some of the reasons for that. Why do you think that as we're seeing sort of more inclusion in other areas of television, that you know, with respect to all of the great white guys in suits who have told jokes in late night over the years, that that's still what that space looks like largely. Well, you know, I do think, as you said, you know, part, part of the upheaval talk took five years ago. Maybe if the upheaval took place now, it would be a little different. You know, one of the sad realities is there haven't been a ton of openings in the five years since. You know, I was certainly really happy that NBC decided to give uh, Carson Daly's spot to Lily Singh. And, you know, that struck me as a move in the right direction. And and even though, you know, Busy's show uh, didn't work or Michelle Wolf's show didn't work, like, it's wonderful to be in a time where they're getting opportunities to try their shows. And, you know, for us, I think the best we can do is, you know, when we, you know, uh, with the women on our staff, like, we try very hard with people like Amber Ruffin or Jenny Hagel to give them a platform. And, you know, nothing would make us happier than when the time came for one of those slots to be filled, that it was someone from our family. So, you know, I uh, I certainly am optimistic that we will see uh, a better representation moving forward. You've been doing this, as we said, for five years. We're used to seeing people stay in this in these roles for really long periods of time. Why do you think that is? And do you feel like you're satisfied in this way that you could see yourself doing it for <laughs> yeah, as long as some of your predecessors? I, well, it was funny. I think after two years, I, I ran into Paul Schaefer and said, I'm really enjoying it. And he said, well, it's only been two years. <laughs> so, uh, But yeah, I mean, I kind of in my head when it started, thought I would assess at five years and and see if it was burning me out and I was more unhappy than I had been at my previous gig. And I'm not, and I really like it. And so now I've kind of set my clock ahead. You know, and again, I should note that it's not entirely up to me, so I will not (laughs) knock on wood. But I would like to be in a situation five years from now that I'm assessing it again. You know, I do think that you people do it for a long time because once you go into people's homes every night and are yourselves on their television screens very hard to say but now I'm going to be the bad guy in a Bond movie <laughs> so you know really uh, we're ultimately just giving ourselves to you in a way that really limits our options uh, career wise moving forward um, Seth thank you very much thank you this is a delight Traditionally reserved for reruns the summer months have become a fertile time for networks to schedule original programming 
Caroline Framke and Daniel D'Addario talked about the shows ahead in the hottest months. So as you hear this, it is on or after Memorial Day weekend, which means that uh, summer season has officially begun. It is traditionally, probably not for a long time, but people do still, I think, think of it this way as a slow time for TV. This despite the fact that this summer sees the returns of Big Little Lies, Succession, Pose, Stranger Things. It's going to be a very, very busy TV summer, at least on the cable side. And uh, we picked out some shows we were eager to get a glimpse of this summer and that we're hoping to spend some time with in the air conditioning. So, Caroline, walk me through these three new or quasi-new shows that you selected to talk about. Yeah, looking ahead at the TV schedule for the summer, I was looking for uh, new shows from voices we either know or want to hear more from et cetera, so on. Uh, one big debut is Tales of the City, which is a continuation of the 90s miniseries starring Laura Linney, Olympia Dukakis, and others. And I'm really interested in this one for a lot of reasons. Uh, as mentioned, Laura Linney and Olympia Dukakis are big reasons to be interested in just about anything. But I'm also really interested to see how this story of sort of queer community in San Francisco evolves for 2019, because I think, obviously, there's been a lot of change uh, in general, and especially in the LGBTQ community and how we talk about it and how it forms. And just, I'm really interested to see how they update it for now. Um, Then another one is Los Spookies from HBO. I'm really excited for this one. This one comes to us from Julio Torres and Ana Fabrega. Torres is one of my favorite SNL writers right now, he's always known for doing the truly weird sketches that you watch and go, how did this get onto SNL? I feel like people know, I, I think there's people barely know who writes for SNL in a granular sense, but his always sketch out, uh, stand out and people immediately right. grab onto those sketches. Like probably his biggest one that you would know is Wells for Sad Boys. Yes. Uh, God, that one is funny. That one with Emma Stone. And uh, there was, he also did the papyrus font one with Ryan Gosling sort of recently. He's very uh, particular and weird and funny. And this series also stars Fred Armisen, produced by Lauren Michaels. Obviously, that's kind of the SNL way. But this is about um, a group of friends and sort of a surreal version of Mexico City that blends some of the comedy and horror together. I have no idea what it's going to be like, but I know I want to watch it. And uh, the last one I picked is Four Weddings and a Funeral. Um, now I re- I'm realizing that two of the three I picked are uh, reinventions of old things, yes. um, which is a theme this summer, to be honest. Uh, and we'll come back to that. But this is a Hulu miniseries, a limited series of 10 episodes um, based on the 90s rom-com, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Uh, and actually, Andy McDowell is going to be in it, but not as her character. So this is an unrelated series um, coming to us from Mindy Kaling and some of her Mindy Project producers. And I am, again, interested to see how they update it for 2019. They have a really much more inclusive cast uh, headed up by Natalie Emanuel, who was recently Game oh, of Thrones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and this is kind of like a moment of potential... Not redemption, but I think people really felt like she went out in such an unfortunate way on Game of Thrones. And I feel like people, it kind of awakened people to the idea that she'd been doing good work this whole time and Mm -hmm. they wish she'd gotten to tell a different story. And now she really will. She really will. And it's a comedy. And I'm really excited to see her do that 
Um, also just confirmed is that Dermot Mulroney will be in it. Um, oh my God, wait, did I get that one wrong? It, I always confuse him and Dermot, no, 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 I Dermot did, Mulroney. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, a small heart attack. No, he, he's the one that makes more, their names are so similar, but he's the one who's rom-commy. Exactly. Dylan McDermott is like the... The, like sexy jerk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and Dermot Mulroney also can be a really good sexy jerk, but in a rom-com yes. sort of way. Um, anyway, so he's going to be in that. So I am excited for that. So Dan, you also picked three new summer shows that you're excited for. What are they? All right. So the first one, I feel it could really go kind of either way. Uh, it is too old to die young. Uh, the Nicholas Winding Refn film. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Uh, the film. I, I, that's a Freudian slip because he has said that it's not TV, uh, which I know is something that all TV critics and people who work in the industry love to hear. Uh, it is a 10-episode uh, series, um, two of which, and not the first two, episodes four and five screened at the Cannes Film Festival. That's a choice. Yeah, a strong, bold choice. And I think they... Um, they receive very mixed reviews. With that said, even when I don't like his work, I think Winding Refn is a fascinating artist. I'm going to refrain from calling him a filmmaker for this context because he's now <laughs> a TV maker. Thank you very much. And I think Miles Teller, who has had kind of a rough go of it in the public eye, is actually an actor with a lot of unfulfilled promise. And him playing a cop moving through the L.A. underworld – with co-stars including John Hawks, Jenna Malone, and Billy Baldwin. I don't it, it could be really wrong, but I really hope that it's really right uh, in the way that moments in his films Drive and the Neon Demon were. He's so excessive that, you know, maybe some there will be some glimmer of excitement amidst the the gloom. Um <laughs> I'm also excited for Das Boat on Hulu on June 17th. Uh it is a continuation of the story of the uh, German U-boat film, which I admit I actually haven't seen. But uh, the the concept that this is divided between life on the German U-boats and on the ground, the French resistance to uh, Germany during World War II, seems like a pretty fascinating way to divide it. And the cast, the names I recognized included Vincent Carthizer of Mad Men, oh. Lizzie Kaplan of Everything, Lizzie and, Kaplan. Yeah, and Vicky Creeps from um, Phantom Thread, among other things. Man, I feel like those are three actors who I'm always excited to see, and I'm always like, where are they? No, exactly. And they're all in the show. And they're all together. It's it's like one of those things, much like, like Greta Gerwig's Little Women adaptation coming out, it was like cast by the internet in a certain way. <laughs> um, finally, we have The Loudest Voice uh, on June 30th. This is Tom McCarthy's... Uh, TV series about the life and work of Roger Ailes, played by Russell Crowe, um, featuring uh, Naomi Watts as Gretchen Carlson, Josh Charles as Gretchen Carlson's husband, who uh, helps walk her through, I gather, um, her eventual claim of mis workplace misconduct by Ailes, and Sienna Miller as Roger Ailes's wife. This is a story that is fascinating. It's based on a book by Vanity Fair reporter Gabriel Sherman. And... Uh, and Ailes is a hugely consequential figure, no longer with us, who kind of set the template for politics as practiced on television today. So I'm very interested to see what McCarthy, who has made a film about journalism before Spotlight, and what Crow, who is certainly a formidable figure, uh, do with his story. 
what a classic, you know, actor puts on a whole bunch of prosthetics. So surely the performance is going to be notable. Oh, completely. In a good situation. I mean, it could go either way as far as I'm concerned. Either it will be a compelling likeness that really shakes me to my core, or he won't be able to get out from under them and it will be a spectacle in a whole different way. But mm-hmm. either way, yeah, they, they definitely are gunning, if for nothing else, than for next year's best prosthetic makeup Emmy. Uh, but there are also a couple shows that are kind of returning through the mists of yesteryear, uh, shows that we kind of feel fondness for. And Caroline, I know you are excited for uh, the return of Veronica Mars. Yes, this is an interesting one because I feel like, I mean, Veronica Mars has already had its comeback. It, you know, it ran for three seasons, uh, critically lauded, etc. And then it was off the air and then it came back as a movie. Like I saw this movie in theaters <laughs> uh, and now it's back again for yes. a limited Hulu series, eight episodes. The whole original cast is back pretty much. Um and I'm mostly interested because, as with anything that comes back, I want to know why. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this has always been one of Kristen Bell's best roles. She's fantastic in it. So I think for her, it was just a no-brainer because this is really fun for her. And she gets to really stretch a lot of muscles that she doesn't on a lot of other projects. Or at least she didn't at the time. And now she's become such a... a bigger figure in entertainment that she can kind of dictate her roles more. Um, And it's kind of where like a lot of her fans imprinted in a way, like a lot of people who followed her through movie work that maybe is not as dimensional or, or TV work that hasn't always been, you know, the good place, like have kind of, go back to that as like the origin. And so I can see why there's an appeal to it. Yes. Um, What I want from this series uh, is I mean, I, I'll be honest, like I saw this movie in theaters and I could not tell you what happens in this movie. <laughs> um, it was very, and this term gets used a lot now, but it really did feel very fan servicey in the way that it was like, maybe this is their last shot. So we're just going to like bring out the jokes you liked, the characters you liked, and we'll, you know, show them doing their thing one last time. And now they're getting to do it again. So I'm hoping that they kind of dig more into the story and why bring them back. Hopefully the story's up to it. Uh, yeah, and I think eight episodes, like an eight-episode miniseries, maybe they couldn't get that when they got the movie, but this feels more right to me. This feels like what it sh- the comeback should have been in the first place, so hopefully that bears out. Uh, Dan, you are a fan of a much different show. Uh, <laughs> that's are so back. different? Please make that case someday. I mean, but... actually, I can't. I'm just, <laughs> I, I want to put the hills into conversation with the every hills. prestige show of um, the last two decades. Um, the Hills, the reality show on MTV about, uh, in its first run, young um, entertainment industry adjacent interns uh, living, laughing, and loving in the city of Los Angeles. The rest uh, is yet unwritten. The rest is yet unwritten indeed because it is returning June 24th to MTV um, with a set of women that is not only absent uh the first run's lead, Lauren Conrad, who has moved on to other things, but has added uh, Misha Barton, the former uh, actress from the OC, making very literal the idea that all of this, in a way, is just stagecraft, uh, (laughs) that all of their travails are just uh, scripted for the cameras. I don't mind. The Hills was, among other accomplishments, among the most beautifully shot shows of its era. It was absolutely stunning to look at. Uh, 
it was it was at the time fascinating for me because the cast members of the hills were about two to three years older than am i they still are and i wonder if i will still find it aspirational or just vaguely strange now that i'm watching characters in their early to mid 30s going through these relationship struggles yeah and it seems like that's going to be part of the appeal maybe this is a strong word but that's sort of the intrigue of doing this series again at this point because now they're not early 20 somethings trying to get a foothold they've gotten their foothold in whatever yes arena they were kind of trying to and now they are settled with families and sort of why are we checking in again in that sense maybe it's similar to uh veronica mars that's the connection i'll <laughs> there try it is. is that is that there doesn't seem on its face to be any compelling reason for this to exist other than the financial aspect. Yeah, but there's also something too, as you were saying, this was a really well shot reality show. And I think that it was a precursor to a lot of shows that are now sort of, we take this genre for granted. Like, I don't think there's a Vanderpump Rules without this show. Yeah, agreed. Although I think that Vanderpump Rules by comparison looks terrible but the whole concept of a group of people hanging out in a very glamorous setting where the whole point is to watch them have fun together in a way that's like three levels of luxury up from the real world is definitely something that this pioneered and i do think that there may be a whole new generation of fans maybe it's not for me maybe the teens today will watch these 30-something women and feel like they're imprinting. Well, we'll see. And there are so many more shows in the summer to come because as you know, as we always say, there's always more TV where that came from. As May ends, the 2018-2019 Nielsen season also comes to a close. Joe Otterson discussed the winners and losers in the annual ratings horse race. Who, who won the broadcast season you gonna say that Broad- yeah, yeah, in the yeah. ratings yeah all right so joe who won the broadcast season god damn it <laughs> that would be this one we're gonna Broad- keep broadcast season which ratings, network won yeah. the broadcast season in terms of the ratings i'm glad joe you asked Dan. jesus yeah it's gonna be our thing so uh in adults 18 to 49 nbc was first and then uh in second place it was a tie between cbs and fox then abc was in fourth and the cw came in fifth okay so we're talking about the 1849 demo ratings yes the key that, demo the uh that list that you just quickly rattled off um what's so give us a deep dive. What what has changed since last season? So deep. Um, NBC was at, well, it's interesting. So NBC had the biggest drop off in its numbers uh, year to year. It was at a 2.2 last year and, and was uh, finished the season out with a 1.6 this year. But bear in mind that NBC had both the Super Bowl and their Olympics coverage last year, which drove huge numbers for them, obviously. Uh, CBS surprisingly stayed at a 1.5, despite the fact they had the Super Bowl this year. But bearing in mind, of course, this was the lowest rated Super Bowl in 10 years. So that obviously, you know, played a factor in that. Um, and then ABC was also down from a 1.5 last year with a 1.2 this year, um, which again, that 1.5, though, was largely due to the fact that they had the Roseanne revival last season, which again, drove huge numbers for them. 
Um, and then turning to total viewers, uh, CBS was first, followed by NBC, then ABC, then Fox and the CW. Uh, CBS saw very little um, loss in terms of total viewers year over year. They were at nine million last year. They were at eight point nine million this year. Um, NBC, much like in their uh, their demo numbers, they were down this year. But again, you know, with seven point two million compared to eight point nine million last year. But again. They had the Super Bowl and the Olympics last year, so that's not altogether surprising. Um, what's interesting thing, really, in terms of total viewers is Fox was the only network to build on its total viewer average this year compared to last year. They had 5.4 million on average this year, and they were at 4.9 uh, the year before that. What was driving that lift for Fox? Um, largely, it was due to the fact that Fox started airing Thursday Night Football, but then they also had The Masked Singer, uh, the unscripted series that just did gangbusters numbers for them, so I'm sure that played a factor. And then The CW was also down a little slightly. It was uh, at a 1.3 million this year and finished out last year with a 1.7 million. So we're used to seeing ratings attrition year to year at this point in the bro- world of broadcast. Are there any takeaways that you get, any surprises from these numbers, any any lessons that can be learned from them? Um, not too many lessons, no. I think I think it's just, again, like you said, it's par for the course. We're kind of looking to see this type of thing. So basically, yeah. there's no reason for us to talk about this. Thanks, Dan. You're right. Yeah. No, Dan, this is, this is our coverage, Dan. This is what we do here at Variety. <laughs> we cover these things. No, um, I think this just goes to show, though, that, um, you know, traditional ratings metrics are becoming um, antiquated to a degree. It's harder for the broadcast networks to show any level of measurable success with these numbers because, obviously, you know, a 1.6 rating, you know, nowadays is very good. You know, 10 years ago, that would have been, you know, cancellation worthy. You know, so I think it just becomes a question now of how these networks are going to uh, demonstrate that these shows are actually building an audience without using these traditional metrics. Our colleague Mike Schneider posted a story on uh, – uh, we're recording this on Wednesday. So he re- re- posted that story today talking about how a lot of the networks were touting reach at the upfronts this year, mm-hmm. which is a, a word that is sort of new to their their lexicon, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um Yeah, and it's one of those, I think, again, that's something people really need to start looking at when they talk about, you know, the success of a network or the success of a particular show, because it's not as simple as, you know, the live same day numbers anymore. All right, Joe, uh, professional as always. Thank you very much. (laughs) It's an honor and a pleasure, Tim. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Neil Gaiman of Amazon's Good Omens. 